Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. We're starting a new year, and I want to encourage you today to set your attention this next year more on eternity, more on the new heavens and new earth. So Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25 says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall, be, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw with the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I just pray that your Spirit would come. I pray that you'd come powerfully, Holy Spirit, and speak. We just sang earlier about that uh, that really a prayer that you would cause our hearts to burn within us. And it says in Luke 24 that when Jesus opened up the scriptures to his disciples, their hearts burned within them. And so I pray that this morning you would use your word as a means to set our hearts on fire. And for this main thing this morning, for eternity, for all that you have for us in the future, that is glorious beyond measure, So God, stir up our hearts today. Help us to hear and to understand. Help me, God, to speak clearly. And may Christ be exalted here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, how many times did you think about eternity? How about in the last month? How about the last year? And when you think about eternity, even right now, or maybe sometime that you know that you have at some point in time, what goes through your mind? Is it mostly fuzzy and vague thoughts? Or are you pinpointed on truth that is meant to impact your life? This year, starting today, I want you to be more affected with eternity. I want you and myself, I want Real Life Church to be a church that, is, that has eternity on our minds and hearts. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that, um, that we're to, one way we're to live is looking to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen, the things that we see, 
are transient or temporary, but the things we don't see are eternal. And so we want to fix our eyes on the things that are eternal. If life is a vapor, like James says, and it is, if a hundred years, even a hundred years, even if someone lives to be a hundred years old here, that's a long time. But in light of eternity, it's like a snap of your fingers or like a blink of your eyes. It's just a mere moment. Life is a vapor. And so we need to set our sights on something beyond this life. Now, that is challenging, isn't it? I mean, when, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 to, to look to the things that are unseen, well, that's where we get kind of these vague thoughts and ideas and fuzzy notions about heaven and about eternity. So this morning, we want to look at Isaiah 65, this text where, where God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And he unfolds for us several things that we can expect with great hope and anticipation for the age to come. Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor from the 1600s in England. And from a very young age, from the age, I think, of 21, he said, as he was later on in life, he said that he hardly had a day where he was without pain. He was someone who suffered greatly. But there was a particular time when he was um, suffering with a sickness that he thought for sure was going to take him out. Um, and so he's bedridden. I think he's about 35 years old, so about my age. And as he was lying in bed for days and days, what he did was he meditated on heaven. He thought for sure he was going down, okay? Now, he saw God heal him miraculously many times. He believed in healing, but he thought this might be his time. Well, he ended up recovering and living another 40 years or so. But what came out of that time of meditation on heaven is a book that he wrote called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. The Saints' Everlasting Rest, which are meditations on our eternal rest with God in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth. One thing that he does in this book is he commends to his readers, and I'm going to commend to you. He says, all I'm putting it in today's language, all Christians should meditate or think about heaven for 30 minutes a day. Everyone, all of us, should think about heaven for 30 minutes a day. Now, some of, some of us might think that's very impractical. But actually, it sounds very similar to what Paul says in Colossians 3. Paul says this, If then you, Christians, have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above, or seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. Life is a vapor. Eternity's really long. And so we should set our mind and be deliberate about setting our mind on things above. Thinking about what is heaven going to be like. Now, some of you might be thinking, in fact, there's a famous evangelist from years ago who said something like this. He said, some people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly value. Okay, I'm not going to name the name because I don't agree with him. Now, he, he may have been thinking about that in a, diff, in a different context. He may have been thinking about, you know, mystical, you know, these mystics that kind of just hide in a closet and just think about heaven all day and never come out and interact with other people. I would agree with him in that sense. But my sense is that you and I, I'll speak for myself and maybe you too, 
we need to be more heavenly minded. And the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good God might use us to do. The more we think about heaven, the more our hope is laid up in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, the more valuable, the more, um, the more value in the work that we do, excuse me, the more valuable our work for God may be here. So in these nine verses, I want to do two things, okay? I want to do, I want to show you what this means for us. What does, what is the new heavens and new earth? What does this mean for us? And then the second thing I want to do is I want to, I want to show you how a rock solid, strong, hopeful trust in this reality would change our lives this next year. Okay, what does this mean for us? What is the new heavens, new earth? No vague, fuzzy ideas. What does this mean for us? You want to know, don't you? Specifically, what does this look like? What can I expect? What can I set my sights on? That's what I want to tell you today. And then also, when we trust this, when we believe this, when this is our hope, how will this change our lives? It matters. No pie in the sky. Baloney, okay? So our our text begins with this. Behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. This is God speaking. At the very end of our passage, it says, says the Lord. God begins speaking back in verse 8 of our chapter of Isaiah 65, when it says, thus says the Lord. So we know that God is speaking. This is God who says, I am going to create the new heavens and the new earth. Just like he created the heavens and the earth at the very beginning, he spoke his word. He's going to recreate. He's going to renovate. He's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. This phrase, new heavens and new earth, are used. this phrase is used four times in the Bible. Here in Isaiah 65, in Isaiah 66, and in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, um, excuse me, 1 Peter, and in Revelation 21. So four times this phrase is used. It's uncertain of whether Isaiah fully understood what he was saying here or envisioned what would happen here when he spoke of new heavens and a new earth. But no doubt Peter and John, who wrote Revelation 21, certainly had an understanding of this new heavens and new earth was at the second coming of Christ when he would set up his kingdom and God would create a new heavens and new earth and, would, and Christ would reign forever and ever. The re- one reason why this matters so much is because this is the consummation of our hope. If all we have is hope that 2015 is better than 2014, that's way too small. And it may get you a little ways into 2015. (laughs) This is the consummation of our hope that Christ is coming again. And he's going to create a new heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the consummation of our hope where God, according to Revelation 21, says, Behold, I am making all things new. Isn't there something deep inside of you that longs? For everything to be perfect. Not you? Man, I know how imperfect I am. I know, especially this last week, some of the things I'm sure. I know how imperfect my body is. I know how imperfect this world is. Isn't there something deep inside of you that says, man, there is so much wrong in this world. I long for perfection. Christ is coming. And God will make all things new. 
That is a great hope for all believers. So what does this mean for us? Six things. First, it means spiritual and moral renewal. It means spiritual and moral renewal. We'll be made new in a way that we are not new right now. We are new in Christ, but we're going to be made new in every way. We're going to be completely made new and renewed in Christ. One of the greatest frustrations in this life is that we still sin. Isn't it? Christ died on the cross. He has made us right with God through his blood. But I still sin. And I hate it. Paul puts it this way in in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. At the end of Romans 7, he says, Oh, wretched man am I. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And our text here, says this, verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. In the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to look at his people and he is going to be utterly beside himself in joy over them. And why? Because they are going to be perfect. We are going to be perfect. Listen to this, how how Revelation 21 puts it. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here in Isaiah 65, the Jerusalem that's being talked about, Revelation 21 tells us, is the bride of Christ, God's people, the church, you and I. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will be adorned like a bride ready for her bridegroom. In other words, we are going to be beautiful morally and spiritually. No blemish, No wrinkle, no spot, not one. Isn't that amazing? Maybe maybe you don't struggle with sinning the way that I do. First John, maybe I need to convince you that we all do struggle with sin and that this is something we need God to help us with and that we need to be set free from. We've been set free from the penalty of sin through Jesus on the cross. The dominion of sin, the power of sin, the cord's been cut, so we are no longer under the dominion of sin, but we still have indwelling sin. But someday, one day, when Christ comes again, we will be removed from the very presence of sin, and it'll be glorious. Here's what Ephesians 5 says in a passage that Many of you know well. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. When's that happen? At his coming again? He presents the church to himself in splendor and glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she 
might be holy and without blemish. I think of when my wife um, and I got married. She's beautiful without makeup, but she did the whole makeup thing. She had a beautiful dress on. She came down the aisle with, I mean, as far as I was concerned, without spot or blemish. When we stand face to face with Jesus on this day, he will look at us as his bride. Now, men, okay, bride just means this intimacy of relationship with Christ, okay? Don't feel weirded out by this, okay? We're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to look at us and say, you are perfect. And he won't be lying. We will be. We will be spiritually and morally renewed. That's not it, though. In the new heavens and new earth, we will be emotionally whole. In this life, we have trouble. How fragile are your emotions and my emotions, right? Emotions are good, but if we live by our emotions, we are a mess. How fragile our emotions are. Every single one of us, our emotions are broken. The ups and the downs, the ebb and the flow of life. My goodness. I mean, in one week, you know, just the the highs being on cloud nine, like nothing can stand against me. And the next day, we can just be down in the dumps. We can experience loss and loneliness, regret, broken relationships. And sometimes even just, we don't even know why we feel the way we feel. At least that's my experience. I remember reading about Charles Spurgeon, who struggled with depression a lot in his life. And he said there, there, there were times when he would just be weeping, and he didn't even know why. I mean, this is Charles Spurgeon, okay? This is not some nobody. He'd, just be, he'd be sad, he'd be discouraged, he'd be weeping, and he didn't even know why. When I read that, I was encouraged. I don't know that I weep a lot, but sometimes I'm just not sure what's wrong, but I just feel like I'm a little out of whack emotionally. Look at the second part of verse 17. Well, let's just read all of 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Then verse 18 says, but be glad and rejoice. Verse 19, the second part says, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Isn't that beautiful? Can you not wait for that time? There will be, I mean, if you could hear every home in the still of the night, you wouldn't hear one cry of distress. Not one person weeping in this city of God at this time. Not one person Not one person is going to be full of sorrow, full of sadness, but all are going to be rejoicing and full of joy. How amazing is that? Are you with me? Over this time of year, okay, Christmas time, um, if you've experienced loss, it's this time of year. That may be above, maybe there's other dates throughout the year. But it's this time of year where the loss of that person is experienced more than on any ordinary day. My dad died two and a half years ago. And it's this time of year. We almost always on Christmas morning, we would get together with my dad. 
It's this time of year when I miss him more than on any other day. There's going to be a time when everything that causes us to weep, everything that causes us to mourn, everything that causes us sorrow and sadness will be gone. And we will be with the Lord. And only joy and only life and only rejoicing and only laughing, right, will be our experience. Now, when it says the former things are not remembered, I don't think this means that difficulties, the difficulties of this life won't have any effect on us in the age to come. Rather, I think that they will only serve to increase our joy in the future. Second, here's, here's, I want to give you a couple of verses to back that up. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says that this momentary and light affliction in this life, Paul's saying this, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction in this life is preparing for us It's almost like the the affliction and loss in this life is serving to increase the joy in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he goes through a list of things. And he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Suffering in this life, difficulty in this life, I believe serves to increase our experience of God's love in Christ both now and eternally. So we will be emotionally whole and full of life. Number three, there will be no more death. (laughs) No more death. Death and bodies that stop working. These things are some of the most daunting realities in our life, in, in our world right now. That every single one of us, if we live long enough, will experience. Everyone here. In the last three years, I've lost my dad and my two grandfathers to death. My dad, 62, was way too young to die. My grandfathers in their mid-90s lived long lives. Prior to my dad getting cancer, at the age of 60, he could have passed for a 50-year-old. He looked very young for his age. Listen to verse 20 here. No more. Say to yourself, no more. New heavens and new earth, no more. No more what? No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. It's not going to happen anymore. Death and decay will not be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. People here have experienced the loss of a spouse, of a parent, of a child. Some have seen very young children die. I know many here, I know at least several, have had miscarriages. 
that reality will not be our, our experience in the new heavens and new earth. It'll be life to the full and life eternal. And it'll be glorious. It'll be amazing. Number four, in the new heavens and new earth, we will be vocationally fruitful. I didn't know how else to put it. Vocationally fruitful. Here, here's what I love about this. No floating around on clouds listening to angels play harps. Forget about that. Doesn't that sound terrible? Doesn't it? Maybe for a little while, okay? But forever? That'd be horrible. Okay, I love our church. I love when we gather together and worship. But heaven, eternity's not going to be the perpetual worship service where we're just doing another rendition of Amazing Grace or your favorite song. I love singing to Jesus. But 10,000 years, come on. We're going to do some other things. We have work to do in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be doing work. But don't think of work like drudgery, like I'm dragging my feet because I know I got to go to work today. Man, how horrible an existence is this? No, we will love it because it'll be glorified by God. Listen to verses 21 to 23. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear bear children for calamity. We will do work for the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. And it will be amazing. We will build and we will plant is what it says here. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But we will be fruitful. All frustration with work. In the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Adam something very sobering. He said, from now on, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work. It's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. The land is going to be against you. And the new heavens and the new earth, that won't be the case. We will build and we will love it. We will plant and sow and water and we will love it. And we will get to enjoy the fruit of our labor and we'll get to enjoy the plants that we plant, etc. We will be fruitful vocationally in the new heavens and the new earth. Number five, evil and strife will be removed. Evil and strife will be gone. Verse 25 says this. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The wolf, in other words, the wolf won't be eating the lamb. And the lion won't be going after the ox. It's just a picture for us of perfect shalom, perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect rest the saints' everlasting rest. But also evil's going to be removed. Not only strife and wars, but also evil. Listen to what it says. And dust 
shall be the serpent's food. I love that. That's what God said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Dust is going to be your food. So in the new heavens and the new earth, what's going to happen? Satan's still going to be eating dust forever. That sounds good to me. Okay? Satan is going to be eating dust. He is going to be punished forever and ever and ever. He will have no part in the new heavens and the new earth, so much like he does now in this world. Evil and strife will be removed. And number six, relational complete, complete, relational completeness. Relational completeness. Verse 24 says this, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. How many know that God is here and God lives in us and we can experience the presence of God now? But there is a relationship with God that we have now, even the most intimate kind of relationship that we possibly could now, that will not compare to our relationship with God eternally in heaven. I think that's what verse 24 is communicating. When we're speaking, he hears us right now, right? He's, he's not deaf. We don't need to holler for him to hear. But God will be so close to us. Revelation chapter 21 um, puts it this way. It says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And it goes on to say, he personally will wipe away every tear. I mean, the, the kind of completeness that we will have in God eternally will be breathtaking Everything, the most intimate kind of relationship you can have with a spouse right now or with Jesus right now will pale in comparison. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says to be away from the body and to be with the Lord would be way better than to stay here on earth. So there's a kind of relationship we have with God now that is not the same as we will have with him then. However sweet it is, it'll be so much better then. So how does this change your life if you really believe it? In fact, I would put it this way. If you really, really believe this, how does it change your life? Can you and I agree on something? Pie-in-the-sky theology, who gives a rip about it if it doesn't change our lives? If it doesn't affect the way that we function here in our thinking, in our emotions, and in our living, who cares about it? But all that the scripture says is supposed to be used by God to change us. So, I have five things. How does this change our lives? One, it makes us hopeful in suffering. It makes us hopeful in suffering. <clears throat> I look out among 
this group of people here, and I know many of you have suffered greatly. Paul suffered greatly. And Paul has a lot of clout to speak to us about suffering and about hope and suffering. And here's what Paul said in Romans 8, 18. He says this. He says, I am convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When Paul says that, if you read Romans 8, he is, he is talking about God's new creation in the future. He's not talking about some, like maybe next week, if God really reveals himself in some powerful way. He's talking about eternity. Now, if you think of Paul, he is someone who suffered greatly. I think he was flogged a number of times. He was shipwrecked a couple of times. He suffered loss and beatings. He was beaten to the point of death even. And he said, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory as to be revealed. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, I read this earlier, quoted this earlier. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, if anyone had the right to say affliction in the present time, it's not light and momentary. It's Paul, right? But he considered even his affliction light and momentary compared to glory in the future. How much more for you and I can this give us hope in life where we are, where we suffer, where we have sorrows, where we have difficulties, where we suffer physically and emotionally and spiritually and relationally in every way. So be hopeful in suffering. Number two, this changes our life because if we really believe it, it sanctifies us. It has a sanctifying effect on our lives. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple, said this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, we don't know. But we know that when he appears, namely Jesus, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And then he goes on to say, and everyone who hopes in this purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, everyone who puts their hope in this purifies himself and becomes more like Christ. Put your hope in this. Think about this this next year. Give 30 minutes a day to thinking about the new heavens and the new earth. Number three, how does this change our lives? Here's how it changes our lives. It makes us more salty in our witness. I don't know what else to put it, okay? It makes us more flavorful in our witness because there's this sense of eternity on our lives. We're not just telling somebody how they can have a better year. We're telling somebody how they can experience eternal joy with God. Right? Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, you've probably heard this before. He says, 
set Christ apart as Lord in your heart and always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. What hope is in you? What hope is in you? When people ask you, do you have a reason? Does it go beyond tomorrow being a better day? Or even, does it go beyond this life? Set your sights on eternity and your witness will be more salty Consider just for a moment, if, if, we can, if we can do this, consider just the alternative to the new heavens and new earth. If you go to Revelation 21, at the beginning it talks about new heavens and new earth, but just before that, Revelation 20 talks about the lake of fire, talks about judgment, talks about those whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire and their torment rises up forever and ever. So eternal joy and eternal sorrow, eternal life, and eternal suffering. Set your sights on eternity and on what awaits you, on the glory that awaits you. And your witness and my witness will be more salty. Pray for me tonight as I go down and bear witness to the men at Bethel Mission. I want my witness there to be salty. I want it to have flavor. I want, I want it to hit men down there so they think, man, this message, this man has, a, has the flavor of eternity, has the scent of eternity. This matters. Okay. Number four, how does this change our lives? Here's how it changes our lives. It makes us fearless in dying. I remember hearing John Piper one time say that one of his aims in ministry was that he wanted to prepare his people to die well. I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that, especially since 100% of people that live, unless Christ comes first, will die, right? I thought there was a lot of wisdom in at least that being one of the aims of his ministry. Well, we set our sights on eternity on what awaits us, we will face death without fear. Death is something that is daunting. There's a lot of mystery about what happens. I mean, we know we go to, to be in the presence of the Lord, but just that whole unconscious, there's just a lot of mystery surrounding it, a lot of unknowns. But if our hope is eternal, then we'll be fearless in dying. We will know the truth of, of 1 Corinthians 15 that says, O oh death, where's your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? Or like Paul says, I love Paul's words in Philippians 1. He, he didn't know if he was going to die. He, he thought he was going to die pretty soon. He said, I don't know if I'm going to die or not. He was, I think he's in prison. And he says, but I know one thing, whether I live or die, I'm going to glorify God, my body, life and in death. And then he says this phrase, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for Paul to die, I mean, he, he thought of that as gain. Fearless in death. Number five, 
How does this change our lives? Here's how it changes our lives. To really believe this, to really have this, not just be something we kind of passively think about here and there, or just say, I know when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, but, but something that is getting into us. It's something that is, is getting into our bones. It makes us risky and sacrificial in love. Not just risky and reckless, but risky and sacrificial in love. I thought of saying risky and radical and sacrificial. I'll just say it. Risky, radical, and sacrificial for the sake of loving others. Jesus says in John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. You love your life here, your temporary life here, you're going to lose it. This vapor of life is going to be over and it's gone. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Our mind is focused on eternity. We are not grasping for temporary things here. We are living for that eternal world that Christ will bring us into.